Good morning. It is good to be with you all this morning. And I guess the feeling's not mutual. Um, thank you. So uh, I want to jump right into this. Um, I like to usually start with a Bible verse when I step behind the pulpit. Uh, I will start from a, uh, with the verse. Thank you. Thank you. But not from the Bible, from an atheist Bible, if you will. If anybody knows who uh, this gentleman is, Richard Dawkins, wrote a book called The God Delusion, sold millions of copies all around the world, translated it in over 30 different languages. And in it, there's a famous quote of his, and he says the following. <clears throat> he says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. He is jealous and proud of it. He is a, he is a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capricious, malevolent bully. What do you think? Now, if you didn't know some of the words, I had to look them up myself. Suffice it to say, he just said a lot of really nasty things about the God that you and I just got through worshiping right now. How does that make you feel? Next question. How would you respond? You could say lies, and then he could say, prove it. Now, while we won't have time to get into this, I'm not going to touch on this, but I, I could recommend a great book by Paul Copen called Is God a Moral Monster? And he goes through all these accusations that Dawkins makes against the God of the Bible. But I'm reminded, this reminds me of something that Christ once said. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5, 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its purpose, its function, it is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and walked on by men. Now, to understand this illustration, we have to understand a few things. Because there is such a wide technological gap between the time this was written and now, because nowadays, we use salt as a luxury to add flavor to food, but this was not the case back then. Why not? Because in these ancient times, there were no refrigerators, so you couldn't store something in a fridge to prolong the shelf life. So what they would do is they would take salt and they would apply it to the meat that they would buy, and the salt would act as a preservative and it would prolong the shelf life of the meat and it would make the meat last longer. So with this understanding of the culture in mind, biblically speaking, who is the salt of the earth? Us, the church. And by the same line of reasoning, according to this analogy Christ has given us, what does the meat represent? The world, the culture. Let me ask you this. Is the meat going bad? Absolutely. Turn on the news. Look at any social media post. It's going bad. But here's what Christ is saying. Suppose you lived in these ancient times, and you go to the local market, and you buy this bag of salts. <clears throat> and you come home, and you begin to apply it to various types of meat that you have. But you begin to notice that no matter how much salt you add, and no matter what type of meat you add it to, the meat continues to spoil and perish just as it normally would, and the salt does not prolong the meat one minute longer. 
which means if this continues to happen, then at some point, you're going to have to step back, objectively speaking, and stop asking yourself, what's wrong with the meat? And at some point, you're going to have to step back and ask yourself, what's wrong with the You did tell me this was a sharper crowd, the second service now. I'm joking. I told the other guys the same thing. Um, You're the salt of the earth. Which means, biblically speaking, when the meat goes bad, Jesus isn't blaming the meat. He's blaming the salt. I have a couple questions for you this morning. When people ask me, Eric, what is apologetics? The best way I know how to explain this is by saying, let me ask you two questions. And you respond however you'd like, and let me respond as a skeptic would. Here are the two questions. First is, why are you a Christian? And the second question is, why should someone else be a Christian? Now, the reason it is two questions is because most of the time, if not all the time, a person's answer or response to the first question does not necessarily apply to the second. To give you an example... I was speaking at a men's conference once, years before I was with Texas Baptist, and I was in the back room before the service, and the pastors were there, and one of the, the main speaker was there who was a pastor, and he approached me, and he's like, you're the guy that does apologetics. I said, yeah. And in, in a kind of patronizing way, he's like, well, that's, that's nice and all, but you know what they say, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, I have my testimony of what God did in my life. I was addicted to drugs. I was violent. I was going through a divorce. I was in gangs. I was an alcoholic. But the one true God saved my life. And no one can argue with my testimony. So I don't need apologetics to defend my faith or evangelize because I have my testimony. I said, that, that's fantastic. I once heard a a Bobby Conway, an apologist, say, if someone tells you they don't need apologetics, it just revealed how little evangelism they actually do. So I said, do you do any evangelism? He said, yeah. I said, what do you do? He said, once a month, we go to these apartments near our church, and we set up this station, and we cook hot dogs and hamburgers for the community. We interact with the kids. We play basketball with them. And then I stand up with a microphone, And I share my testimony, but tell him that the one true God saved my life. And no one can argue with that. I said, that's great. But let me ask you a question, hypothetically. So let's say you go for lunch, and suppose five hours later, a different religious group comes, and let's say they're Muslim. And they go to the same spot, same apartment complex, and they set up a station, and they cook hot dogs and hamburgers, for the community, they interact with the people, they play basketball with the kids, but then one of their religious leaders, who's a Muslim, stands up. And let's suppose, for the sake of argument, that his testimony is like 10 times better than your testimony, right? He was going through 10 divorces, because you know he's Muslim. Um, He was in 10 different gangs, addicted to 10 different types of alcohol, 10 different types of drugs, but then he grabs a mic and leans in and says, but the one true God, Allah, changed my life. Now, based on what you told me earlier, you said a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. So based on his testimony, would you drop to your knees right there and give your life to Allah and become a Muslim? He said, no, of course not. I said, right, that's that's kind of my point. 
Now, don't hear me saying something I'm not saying. Scripture says that the preaching of the cross is power to those who believe, that is, you and I, but it is foolishness to those who don't. So our job as believers is how do we take what the world deems as foolishness and translate that to demonstrate its power? I submit to you that is in part the discipline and task of apologetics. Because if I can be honest with you, I'll be coming out with a, a book later this year on witnessing to non-believers. And one of the things I mentioned in there is that when you look at the past 50 plus years of evangelism material, what, what I see mostly is the way we pitch evangelism is not Christ-centered, it's man-centered in this sense. Become a Christian because look at the great life you can have. Here's my testimony, and I'm much happier now. You want to be happy too? Become a Christian. But what that does is that conveys a sentiment that you don't become a Christian to give your life to God and give it all to God. You become a Christian so you can have God as a genie and he can give it all to you. But that doesn't preach well in China where they're being persecuted and beheaded and imprisoned and persecuted and killed for being Christians. It doesn't work over there. Because, see, I can't guarantee you that if you become a Christian, you'll have a great life. In fact, if you want to have a carefree life, don't be a Christian. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, if I didn't go to religion to make me happy, I knew a bottle of wine would do that. So if you want to be happy, he said, I don't recommend Christianity. If you might say, Eric, how would you respond to this question? These two questions. I have one answer for both. It's really deep and profound. You might want to write it down. Here it is. Eric, why are you a Christian? And why should someone else be a Christian? My answer, because it's true. What a novel thought, right? Put it this way. <clears throat> Suppose you say, Eric, why do you believe water is H2O? And I say, oh, let me tell you. Ever since I started believing that water is H2O, I've become a much better husband to my wife. And, you know, my life has been so much happier. Uh, 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 I'm so much more, you know, uh, brighter. In fact, I meet with a group of friends once a week, and we sing these songs about how water is H2O, and, and sometimes they're just so moving, I move to tears, which is H2O, and, and I'm just moved to lift my hands, and, you know, I'm just such a better person. You laugh. But how much different is that than some of the way we pitch evangelism these days? But you are the salt of the earth. 1 Peter 3.15 says, In your hearts set Christ apart as holy, and always be ready to give a logical defense for the hope that is in you. That word defense, some translations say answer, be ready to give an answer, comes from the Greek word apologia, which literally translates to the word defense. And hence, you want a definition, apologetics is simply giving a defense for what you believe and why you believe it. If you're gonna take notes, I highly encourage, write down the word stronghold. In this passage, we have a passage concerning spiritual warfare. And it tells us that according to this passage, the purpose of spiritual warfare is to destroy and overthrow something called strongholds. So the question naturally arises, what's a stronghold? Growing up, I was told strongholds were things like demon possession or alcoholism. It may encompass that, 
but the next verse actually defines it for us. And the biblical definition says, inasmuch as we refute, tear down, and destroy arguments, reasonings, and every proud and high thing that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Which means, biblically speaking, a stronghold are things like thoughts, ideas, philosophies, reasonings, any sets of beliefs that people hold to that will hinder or keep them from coming to a knowledge of God. And the Bible tells you to know how to recognize and destroy or tear them down. And this is literally, according to the Bible, the spiritual warfare of our culture. Why? Because a person cannot come to a knowledge of God or a deeper knowledge of God, talking about Christians, when they possess such strongholds. Which means according to scripture, if you want to be effective, first of all, according to scripture, this is a New Testament commandment to every New Testament believer. Which means if you're alive today and you're a Christian, you are commanded to be able to tear down and recognize and destroy the strongholds you encounter in your culture. Because you are the salt of the earth. But if it loses its purpose, it's no longer good for anything but to be walked on by people. Is the church being walked on today? Hmm. Strongholds. So, according to scripture, if you want to be effective in evangelism, if you want to be effective in spiritual warfare, if you want to be effective in discipleship, you cannot do so without apologetics, biblically speaking. And if you take issue with that, you can take it up with the author. I just read the book. I didn't write it. Now, some people might say, but Eric, isn't it all about faith? I don't have time to get into how that word faith has been misapplied and abused by both Christians and non-Christians and atheists. But I can put it this way. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, they approach Christ. And they say, out of all the commandments in the Testament, which one is the greatest? That's the crowd at this point. I say, how many commandments are in the Old Testament? And someone usually shouts out, 10. And I say, close enough, 613, but 10, that's pretty close. And he says, the greatest is this, to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is a first and principal commandment. Let's briefly unpack this. According to scripture, according to Jesus, the greatest commandment encompasses loving God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, the heart would have been indicative of a person's emotions, which means, biblically speaking, to fulfill the greatest commandment, you are to love God emotionally. And I can say, in all honesty, the church, the modern-day 21st century American church, we've done a pretty good job at this. We come to the altar, we lift our hands, we cry, we get emotional, that's good. I'm not talking against it. That is good. Keep doing that. Then there's loving God with the strength, which would have been indicative of your servitude, your service towards God. As soon as I showed up here, I was greeted by a pastor, which you have a tremendous pastor, by the way. I had people, three amens, good, thank you. Um, you got three amens, pastor. Um, I was greeted by, by great people saying, hey, do you need help? Can I do this for you? Can I do that for you? I'm sure... Some of the young guys in the crowd during youth service, you, you try to impress the girls and you pull out the chairs and you're serving God with your, with your strength. Keep doing that. But then there's loving God with the mind. If you look in the Greek, that means your intellect, your faculty of understanding, your moral, rational reasoning. And can I say with a heavy heart, this is where the modern day 21st century American church has really dropped the ball. 
And it wasn't always this way. If you were to go back in time with me to run 2,000 years ago, 325 AD to be exact, you would find the Council of Nicaea of early church fathers gathering together because, first of all, they, they devoted their lives to this. You have to understand that Christianity was still a relatively speaking new religion and you had what Paul calls these mysteries. It doesn't mean mystery as in like we have no idea. When Paul uses the word mystery, he's talking about a new, new piece of revelation that we have to further unpack. And they begin to hammer out doctrines of the Trinity and the deity of Christ. But heresies begin to arise. So they gather together to say, we, we, we need to not just be on the same page, but we need to be able to correct these heresies. So here's the things that they begin to ask and question and, and talk amongst themselves. They were trained philosophically and they were trained theologically. And they begin to ask questions like this. Well, the Trinity... How can we articulate this to be as clear as possible? Well, we can say that, that there's, there's um, one God, three persons. There is one, one what, but three who's. Well, well, we have this divine substance. What does it mean to be a substance? What are the metaphysical implications of a divine substance? Well, what about Christ? The incarnation. Well, he has a divine nature, but we can say he took on a dual nature. Well, God's a person. Well, what does it mean to be a person? What, what, are the metaf what is a metaphysical grocery list of what it means to be a person? What is persona? And these deep theological, philosophical questions. But here's the kicker. Around this time, the church had seen some of the greatest persecution that the church will ever see in history. And I'm talking about being fed to lions for entertainment. Beheaded in front of crowds, stoned to death, boiled alive, and crucified upside down, and yet around this time of such great persecution, the greatest concern of the early church was, is what we believe true? Is it biblical? Is it logical? Why? Because they were giving their lives for this. Now fast forward back to 2,000 years to today. What's our greatest concern? We're not being fed to lions. We're not being persecuted. And what's our greatest concern? Are the church pews comfortable enough? Did they sing my favorite song? Is there enough coffee in the lobby for the visitors? Fair questions, but what is our greatest concern? I was invited once to speak at a youth group years ago. This is before Texas Baptist, so I won't mention the church, but if you meet me in the lobby and slip me a five, I'll, I'll tell you where it's at. Um, <clears throat> Pastor wanted to have lunch with me before the service, so I said, sure. We're sitting down, and he says, you know, I, I know you do apologetics, but I just, I just don't think it has a place behind the pulpit. Maybe a Bible study, he said, maybe, but definitely not a Sunday morning service. I wasn't gonna argue with him. I'm about to preach at his church. And thankfully, my message that night wasn't on apologetics, but I just said, agree to disagree. The service starts, the youth pastor invites me up and says, just take a moment to introduce yourself. So I briefly mentioned that I do apologetics, but I said, hey, if you have questions, catch me after the service. Service ends, I'm gathering my things at my seat, and out of the corner of my eye, I see this young man and his mom, and they just like march towards me really fast and aggressive, and they stop right in front of me, and the young man says, tell her, you said we could ask you questions, right? And I said, what did I say in my message? Like, did I, what did I say? I said, yeah. I said, is everything okay? And, 
his mom looked at him, looked at me, and said, as long as you're okay with it, I'll let y'all talk, and she walked off. I said, what was that about? And what he said next really broke my heart. He said, I'm an atheist. I don't want to come to church, but my mom forces me to, so I come. But I have questions. And I began to ask these questions to those in my youth group. And when they couldn't answer my questions, they sent me to the youth pastor. And then he sent me to the pastor. And then he put his head down and said, and it's gotten to the point to where they said, if you're gonna come to church, sit down and shut up and stop bothering people with your questions. And he looked at me and said, but you don't come to this church, so the rule doesn't apply to you. And you said we could ask you questions. So can I, can I ask you questions? We talked for at least an hour, and he had great questions. He was a junior in high school. And I said, what books have you been reading? Sure enough, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens. And the guy with the keys to the church said, y'all gotta leave because my wife and kids are waiting at home. So as we're walking to the car, he's still, we're still talking, he's still asking questions, he's incredibly grateful. And I said, you know, I'm gonna meet with the pastor tomorrow for breakfast. If you'd like, I can ask him if we can continue this conversation over email or even over the phone. He said, that would be so good. I met with the pastor for breakfast and I said, pastor, with all due respect, I know what you said yesterday about apologetics. But you know you have an atheist in your youth group, right? And he looked at his napkin, kind of nervous, and he laughed and said, yeah, that, that's so-and-so. We're praying for him. I said, you know it's gonna take more than that. It's a small town in Texas. There's only one high school. I said, if you lose this kid, he's gonna take about half that youth group with him. I said, here's my card. I want it to be respectful out of respect for your church, I didn't give him my card, but I'll give it to you. If you're okay with it, would you hand him my card because I told him I'd be willing to continue the conversation? That was almost 10 years ago. Never heard from the kid. But you are the salts of the earth. There are three dominant strongholds in our culture that I'm gonna briefly go through. Because if I were to ask you, what is the greatest threat to Christianity today? It's not science, it's not Richard Dawkins. It's not even strongholds, because we have answers for that. But the greatest threat to Christianity today are intellectually lazy Christians who refuse to rationally recognize and respond to the strongholds in our culture. There are three dominant strongholds in our culture. The first one is known as relativism or postmodernism. And it is a view that truth is relative. There is no right or wrong. There is no absolute truth. Let me explain this briefly. Suppose there's a dog here. And I say there's a dog to the right of the podium. But someone in the front row says, no, no, no. There's a dog to the left of the podium. Which one of us is right and who's wrong? 
Well, we're both right. Why? Because it just depends on your perspective. And so, says a postmodernist, truth is the same way. It's relative. So, it doesn't matter what religion you want to be part of. We all got to believe something. But that's your truth, not mine, and don't impose your truth or your religious morality onto me. So, you're against same-sex marriage? Fine. But don't tell this person they can't marry who they love because that's your truth, not theirs. You're against abortion. Fine. But don't tell this young girl who got raped that she can't have an abortion because you shouldn't impose your religious morality, your truth onto her because truth is relative. There is no absolute. Keep that to yourself. Stronghold. The second one is known as scientism, which is far more than an appreciation for science. Note the ism. It is a view that truth, uh, that the only way to gain knowledge is through science. I saw a meme once that said, scientists have recently discovered that people will believe anything you say as long as you tell them scientists have recently discovered it. So someone might say, if it can't be proven scientifically, then either it cannot be known or it cannot be true. So you want me to believe in God? Show me the scientific evidence. You want me to believe in an afterlife? Show me one person who has taken a lab into heaven, into the afterlife, did experiments and came back and show me the, 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 the empirical results. Stronghold. Last one is known as naturalism, which is a view that the physical world is all that exists, nothing more, nothing less. And it is this one that really hits home for me, and I'll tell you why. Freshman year of college, I take my first philosophy class, and I enjoyed it predominantly because I was allowed to ask questions, which was not the case in my youth group. I actually got in trouble twice for asking questions, so I sympathize with that a lot. Second semester rolls around. I later found out my professor was an atheist, but I enjoyed it because he let me ask questions, and he was, he was gentle, he was nice. He let me talk. Studies show, Barna studies show that there's like the top 10 reasons why young people leave the church, which by the way, Statistically speaking, three out of every four young people will leave the church first year of college. One, two, three, gone, you're staying. One, two, three, gone, you're staying. And keep going down the, down the line. And some of the top reasons were given was, one of them was the church doesn't take my questions seriously or doesn't allow me to ask questions. At the conference, I'll talk about more later, we're going to end with an entire hour Q&A questions from the audience. Invite your unsafe friends, please. So, second semester rolls around. People tell me if you're going to take another class in philosophy, do not take Professor Pena's class. He's going to try to make you lose your faith. And I said, where can I sign up? Not because I wanted to lose my faith, but I had questions. And I knew if Christianity is true, I need to know why. But if it's false, I'd still like to know why. And maybe this is a guy for the job. Pivotal moment for me in my life and ministry. He walks into class one day and he pretends to hold up this antidepressant pill. And he says, religion wants us to believe in something like a soul. And according to Christianity, it's immaterial. And this is a thing that gives us the ability to have a hope in an afterlife and seeing our family and friends who have passed away. And according to something like Christianity, your thoughts and emotions and, 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 and moods, which are also supposed to be not physical, are in your soul. But here's the problem. If I were to take this antidepressant pill, which is physical, how could it have the power to change the alleged immaterial states and moods and emotions of my soul? 
Because every time we look at the brain scans, we just see neurons firing. And every time we look under a microscope at the body, all you see are the base elements of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. But you never find anything like a soul. How can this be? He said, well, the answer is simple. I'll tell you how. Here's the answer. The answer is, there is no soul, there is no heaven, there is no hell, there is no God, there is no afterlife. You are just a physical brain and body, and we need to learn to live with this fact, get on with our lives, and stop believing in this nonsense. Class dismissed. Stronghold. How would you respond to something like that? I was a freshman in college. I knew not to go ask my church. I learned that lesson twice. But what troubled me was this. Up until this point in my life, I had heard a lot of complaints against Christianity. God did this in the Old Testament. God's like this. But that wouldn't prove Christianity was false. It just means you have a personal bias against it. But this was different. Why? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if there is no resurrection, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, Christianity is false. Well, by the same token, if there's no soul, there can be no resurrection, and thus, if there's no soul and no resurrection, Christianity would be stronghold how would you respond to something like that so let's briefly go through these some responses postmodernism I had someone tell me Eric you cannot say Christianity is true because there is no truth I said really they said yeah hmm I said that's the case is that true I said what I said well you told me there's no truth but you said that as if you believe it's true but if there is no truth, then the very statement you just told me that there is no truth can't be true because it's what you call in philosophy self-defeating. When I lived in Houston, I was invited to this radio station that was a secular left-leaning radio station. And to be tolerant or to show how tolerant they were, they would invite people from the community who disagreed with them to talk about their beliefs. So I got an invitation one day and said, would you be willing to come on to the show and talk about why you're a Christian? I said, I'd love to. So I get there, day of the show, I've got all these, about 10 pages of notes ready. As I'm about to walk in, the atheist host says, oh, by the way, we also do this because we allow the community to interact with our guest. We have a lot of people who listen in, and if they find something challenging or disagree with you, they're going to call in, are you okay with taking calls? I said, sure. And they said, okay, great. Last time we had a pastor on the show, we got one or two calls. So you might get a few calls. I said, sure, let's do it. First commercial break. I had, I had only talked for maybe not even 10 minutes. I wasn't even through, like, I was barely on my second point. First commercial break. He looks at me and he looks at my notes and says, I know you have a lot more you want to get to, but um, all the phone lines are ringing. Would you like to take a call? I said, well, sure, why not? We come back from the commercial break. First caller. Guy calls in, says, who are you to tell people they're wrong? I said, excuse me? He said, who are you to tell people they're wrong? I, I was okay with you that you believe in God. I'm fine with that. Everybody needs to believe in something. But then you started talking about Christianity being true. Are you telling me and everybody else listening that if you're not a Christian, you're wrong? I said, yeah, that, that, yeah that's how it works if something's true then anything that's not that answer is false. Yeah. He said, well, you can't do that. Who are you to tell people they're wrong? So I said, let me make sure I understand you. Are you telling me that it's immoral or inappropriate to tell people they're wrong? He said, yeah, you shouldn't do that. I said, okay. Well, then I just have one question. 
Why are you calling me on a live public radio to tell me that I'm wrong if it's wrong to tell people that they're wrong? I said, Let, let's go to the next caller. Lady calls in. Christians are so tolerant. You're bigots, blah, blah, blah. You're against same-sex marriage, against abortion, yada, yada. And I said, well, ma'am, calm down. Uh, are you telling me that we should tolerate everybody's beliefs? She said, yes. You need to tolerate everyone's beliefs. I said, okay. I just have one question. Then why are you not tolerating my intolerance or beliefs? Right? Someone once said, don't enforce your morality onto me. I said, why? Is that immoral? They said, yes. And is that your morality? They said, yes. I said, then don't force it on me. It's self-defeating. Scientism. Science is the only way to get knowledge about reality. There's lots to say. I go much deeper into this in the DVD, but suffice it to say this is false for many reasons. I'll give you a few. If I said, prove that truth exists, how would you do that scientifically? Would you write the word truth on a piece of paper, burn it at 32 degrees, put it in some water, stir it, and if it turns blue, it's true? Truth exists? How does that work? Can you find morality under a microscope? Jay Warner Wallace, he's a cold case detective who will be at our conference. He's solved a lot of cold case homicides. He'll be here, and he can tell you, you don't look at blood and look under a microscope and say, oh, look, it says right here that was immoral. No, why? Morality is not something you discover scientifically. I have atheists say sometimes, Eric, give me scientific evidence for God. And my response is, why would I want to do a silly thing like that? Because, see, while science is a great and wonderful tool for studying the physical world, it is a discipline and tool that is limited to only studying the physical. And if God, if God exists, he is an immaterial entity. So you cannot use science to try and investigate the physical uh, that can only investigate the physical to try and investigate or search for the non-physical. It's what's called a category fallacy. If you said, Eric, how much do you weigh? And I say, well, hand me that ruler, let's find out. It's a category fallacy. So you cannot use science that's limited to the physical to study God who's non-physical, category fallacy. What about naturalism? <clears throat> With the time we have left, really quick, at the conference, I'm going to do an entire hour session on the existence of the soul. So if you come to the conference, we'll, we'll do an entire hour on that, so I won't go too deep into this, but I'll, I'll put it this way. Whether you realize it or not, these strongholds have crept into the church and we haven't realized it. I can show you. Do me a favor, some audience interaction, please. Can you point to me what part of your body thinks? Can you point? What part of your body thinks? Okay, I see this. Okay, brain is what we're saying? Yeah. Do you need a brain to think? Yeah, okay. Next, Next question, does God have a brain? I didn't, I didn't hear that. What was that? We had a Mormon church pastor? No, right? God doesn't have a brain. Why? Because he's not physical. We're not Mormons. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Huh. Yeah. Does God think? Mm, yeah. Psalm says his thoughts about us are more than the grains of sand. He's crazy about you. He thinks. Huh. God doesn't have a brain. He thinks. Are you made in his image? Hmm. Hey, do you need a brain to think? I hope you're at the conference because I love this. I love the feedback. Right. 
So, why is this a problem? Put it this way. It's as if we let the culture lead in almost every area. And the culture tells us, look, the secular culture, secular institutions, and even Christians, we know that when you think, there's neurological activity. So let's just say the brain thinks and let's be neutral. Guess what? That's not neutralism. That's not neutral. That's naturalism. It's reductionistic. But let's say the brain thinks. Okay, fine. And then, and then they tell us, but, but look, church, hey, Christians, it's okay. If you want to talk about the soul and the spirit, you can do that at your Sunday school. Just don't bring that nonsense out here. So we're told the brain thinks. We swallow hook, line, and sinker, and then we come to a church Sunday morning, lift our hands, and worship a God who has no brain and thinks just fine, but we never let these two beliefs come together because we don't actually take our theology seriously. Strongholds. And by the way, I'm not talking about this church. The one I passed up down the road, they're like that, not you guys, no. (laughs) No, your brain doesn't think. But there's a correlation between your soul and brain. If I were to play a piano or a guitar, suppose I'm playing a guitar and the guitar string pops. I'm no longer able to play certain notes. Does it follow, therefore, if I broke this guitar open, the note C would just kind of fall out? No. Do I open a piano and pull out the note E flat? No. Why? Because it's not in there, but there are correlated keys and strings that you need in order to play that note. You are a soul that has a body. You mess with my instrument and my brain, you're going to mess with my soul, just like if you mess with my guitar, you affect the way I play the music. It doesn't prove there's no soul. It proves there's a correlation. But you are the salt of the earth. We'll go much deeper into that, but I'll leave you with this. There's a great argument you can share that would disprove naturalism and an argument for God's existence by Dr. William Lane Craig. It's called the Kalam Cosmological Argument. Don't worry about the big name. It's only three sentences long, and you can share this with someone in 30 seconds or less. At the end of this, I will, I'm going to go through this kind of fast. At the end of this, I'll give you a link to my website where you can download my notes and slides from today absolutely for free. Um, and again, we have the DVD back there where we go much deeper into it, Evidence of God. But briefly, 30 seconds or less, you can share this. I'm going to take longer than that. But if you're in a taxi cab, if you're in an elevator, or if you follow someone to a bathroom and they sit down, you've got at least 30 seconds and you can, you can get your witness in there. So, premise one, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Premise two, the universe has a cause. And based on one and two, therefore, excuse me, the universe began to exist based on one and two, therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, to understand the argument, you have to understand something. That at the inception of the universe, When the universe began, three things came into existence that did not exist without the universe, namely time, space, and matter. To put the point differently, if there were no universe, then there would be no time, there would be no space, and there would be no matter. So, with this in mind, when we look at the argument, we can actually deduce certain attributes from this cause by looking at its effects. Because we know that causes are always greater than or external to or prior to their effects. Here's what I mean by that. The person that caused this phone to exist is not inside of it because as a cause of a phone, he is external to and greater than and precedes this phone. So, when we look back at the beginning of the universe, if time, space, or matter had a beginning 
And if everything that begins needs a cause, well, then time, space, and matter would need a cause. And if causes precede their effects, then it logically follows deductively that whatever caused time, space, and matter must be, guess what, timeless, spaceless, and immaterial. Sound familiar? Which means if the universe began to exist, then we know now, based on a logical deduction, there must exist a timeless, spaceless, immaterial entity. I was sharing this with an atheist once, and he said, wait a minute, you're trying to talk about God. And I said, really? You think so? I don't know. He says, but, but hold on. Why do you have to point to God? Why couldn't it be something natural that caused the universe? Why couldn't nature, something within the natural world, have called the universe? And I said, well, because if nature had a beginning, it would need a cause. But if you're going to tell me that nature caused all of the natural world, then you're essentially saying that nature had to have existed prior to its existence in order to bring itself into existence, which is just a logical contradiction. So if nature had a beginning, you need something that is beyond the natural world, something that transcends all, all of nature, something that, there's a word for that, it's a supernatural, literally beyond nature, super nature. And you would need a being that is unimaginably powerful to create everything out of nothing. I heard a joke once, a scientist went up to God and said, I can create life without you, I don't need you. And God said, really? Atheist said, yeah. He said, well, show me. And he said, I'd love to. And the atheist bends over and he starts to grab some dirt. And God says, whoa, whoa, time out, get your own dirt. <laughs> and you would need a being that is personal, why? Don't have time to get into details, but the universe is what's called contingent. It didn't have to exist. So its existence was a decision that was brought about by a personal agent. Which means you take a deep breath for dramatic effect. If the universe began to exist, then there must exist a timeless, spaceless, immaterial, supernatural, unimaginably powerful, personal entity, and I just call him God for short. And I have the privilege of calling him my Heavenly Father. You are the salt of the earth. You are commanded biblically to tear down strongholds, but you have to be able to recognize them first and have answers not for just what you believe, but why you believe it. <laughs>